Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Kayong Lee, your host, and with me here is Sunny Shang, who will be talking about her book, Tonal Intelligence, The Aesthetics of Asian Inscrutability During the Long Cold War, which was released by Columbia University Press in 2020. In Tonal Intelligence, Sunny reads the archives of U.S. intelligence agencies alongside Asian American literature to develop a method of reading for tone rather than content, and shows us how doing so allows us to rethink both the nature of war itself and the construction of war, or the construction of race during the long Cold War. Thank you so much for joining me, Sunny. I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Hi, Jennifer. Um, thank you so much for having me here. It's uh, it, it's really great to chat with you and um, about myself. So um, I I'm a professor of English and specifically Asian American Asian diasporic literature at Yale University. Uh, my teaching usually focuses on some version of American literature, postcolonial literature, and literatures of U.S. empire. Uh, I wrote Tonal Intelligence uh, based on, well, the book is based on my, um, my doctoral dissertation, which I wrote at UC Berkeley. And um, after I finished the dissertation, I taught at Florida Atlantic University for a year and then moved to Yale right after that. So it's been a, a book that's been through several institutions with me and um, I've thought about for some time and it's gone through many, many different versions. And if one were to look at the dissertation, it would be probably mostly unrecognizable. Um, I came to write the book. I, I would say that it wasn't necessarily, oh, um, you know, this is kind of the vision that I had and, um, I'm just going to follow that vision from the beginning to the end, I really felt like, you know, I had to really think through some of my uh, framings and um, how I wanted to tell the story that I wanted to tell. So it, it was a it was a book that took a, a, a few turns. 
Um, and I would say ultimately it began with an interest in the Cold War and how to think about Asian American literature through a Cold War frame. And that part of it, I think, has um, has still persisted. But a lot of the other parts has kind of shifted around. Yeah, thanks so much. That's really exciting. I guess I'll start by you kind of described what brought you to this project. So unless you want to talk about that more. I, I can say a little bit more, okay, I yeah, guess. So what, yeah. what brought you to the to the project that became your dissertation and then became your first book? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm kind of a latecomer to Asian American studies, relatively speaking. I, I grew up in Alabama, and I really wasn't that aware of what it meant to be Asian American or that there was a, a field of study or a, um, a uh, politics called Asian American studies. And so it was when I went to college at Northwestern that I really discovered, oh my gosh, there's this entire um, intellectual framework and political framework for helping explain so many different parts of my life. And the, the thing that, um, so that was hugely revelatory to me. It totally transformed my relationship to the kinds of courses I was taking, to the way I viewed my own life, uh, to the way I viewed the world. Uh, but the one thing that happened was that I, I was an English major and I wrote my, uh, my senior thesis on Virginia Woolf and Mary McCarthy and really did not think of Asian American studies as necessarily something that was relatable to English. So it was only when I got to graduate school where it became, and I think I was already kind of heading in this direction, but um, it was really only then where I kind of realized, oh, you know, this is the, the, the questions that are preoccupying me, the things that I really want to commit myself to. So in that sense, it, wasn't, it, it was something that I realized after I was already in graduate school. So when I was in graduate school, I, I didn't really start out interest, interested in the Cold War. It was more that I really loved reading novels. And I would say at this point now, the situation has kind of reversed where all I'm, I, most of what motivates my, uh, my course of research and the questions I'm asking has to do with um, the Cold War and the novels have kind of fallen um, away or to a di- um, they occupy a different position in my thinking. But initially, I, um, I really loved reading novels and I was especially interested in, in Chen Rei Li and Kazuo Ishiguro and um, how their writing style, um, it, it was similar to each other and it seemed to tell something about Asian racialization, uh, Asian self-perception that was really fascinating to me. And in the course of reading and writing about Ishiguro and Lee, I uh, came across the work of, or in the course of classes, I came across the work of Daniel Kim and Jody Kim, two scholars who wrote about um, the Cold War and Asian American literature and it just totally changed how I, I saw everything. And I think especially Jody Kim's work in, um, at that time showing how Asian American literature was, in fact, a Cold War formation. 
So after that, I felt like everything that I read uh, just seemed like uh, I had a different way of thinking about it. Uh, one where it seemed like American race relations always also pointed us to the question of empire and militarism. So that was kind of how uh, I, I developed the, I, I would say, the the direction of my research and then the exact content of what that looked like in the book. That was kind of what uh, shifted over time. Yeah. And in Tonal Intelligence, you open with the reading of Don Meech's Hardly War, which you describe as showing war to be hardly intelligible rather than spectacularly violent. And you describe the long Cold War as one whose temporality is derived from a pervasive temperament rather than a punctual event, such that war has become a way of life. So I was wondering if, you know, building on what you were just saying, if you could elaborate on why it is that when war can no longer be thought of as a discrete set of events, a mode of reading centered on tone becomes essential. Yeah, um, that's a really perceptive question. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> I, mean, I think the, the uh, based on what I was saying, where I, I, I was reading these works and I didn't really even think of reading them as documents of war or documents of militarism, um, I think that speaks to a sense of, you know, there's something uh, about Asian America or um, race in America, maybe more generally, that cannot be adduced to a particular sense of eventfulness. And so for talking about, so native speaker by Terry Lee does not appear in the dissertation, but it was the, the novel that initially really, um, really kind of spoke to me on these terms where it doesn't seem like war plays a part um, because there are only glancing references to it. But in a way, I wanted to say that there is something about um, the, the entire uh, characterization of the narrator that had something to do with uh, the, the formation of this figure of the free Asian during the Cold War. And uh, I think looking to someone like Don Mi Choi, where the figure of character is much more um, receded, um, to me, that poetry collection is an even more amplified sense of what it might mean to experience war tonally. And by that, I mean, she too doesn't really reference particular events. Uh, and she may, in a, a kind of, um, parodic sense or um, manipulating uh, uh, a historical archive kind of sense. But to me, it really seems like um, what she's trying to capture is war as a structure of feeling or war as uh, a certain kind of sentiment. And um, to me, an especially powerful part is towards the end of the collection where she uh, has the, the uh, persona or the speaker go into uh, her father's camera. Um, so her father, just to provide a little bit of background, was a war photographer. So a lot of the collection is using um, his photographs and putting those together with U.S. propaganda, U.S. intelligence documents. And 
also her own um, her own writing and then some of her own sketches. And towards the end, she has this um, this moment where uh, it seems like she is going inside the camera. And here we get um, to me the most dramatic uh, amplification of tone, um, where it seems like what she's really highlighting is the strange, distorted um, qualities of uh, these voices singing out and um, not necessarily talking about anything, but creating a particular effect. Yeah, I think you just did a really wonderful job of describing like how you were drawn to texts that are not explicit in describing like I don't, know. Yeah. I, would, I don't know how to describe like trappings of war even, but that they're, right. They're not really it. war novels or war yeah. poems or something where it's not Tim O'Brien's of things we carried. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. I think that's exactly right. Where um, part of rethinking the temporality of war or the tonality of war is trying to read texts in a way where it really transforms what we count or what we recognize or becomes intelligible as war so I think that's a huge part of it yeah I was wondering how what you do what you just described like what how that helps us to understand our present moment I I pulled us out from the text a lot right now but um, I think you just described something that like I think that leap is right there Right. Well, I mean, I think um, our present moment is certainly one that's militarized, even if when you talk to someone in the street, the person probably wouldn't say, oh, we're at war right now. We're, I don't know what at war would connote, but um, maybe something that one would see in a Hollywood blockbuster war movie. But nonetheless, uh, I do think there's... Um, that every part of our daily lives in the United States is militarized. And that's not even considering the, the in gigantic U.S. military apparatus in other parts of the world, including hugely the Pacific and Asia. Um, just to give one example that's, you know, kind of weighs on me and is in my mind a lot is um, the whole situation with how uh, from the beginning, the government was responding or not responding to the COVID crisis. Um, And I'm thinking here of the early days when I was in New York City at the time. Uh, So a lot of the rhetoric was coming from um, the the political figures um, in the city, but also nationally, that um, it was a rhetoric of the virus as an enemy that one had to defend against. And there were so many metaphors of, um, you know, um, fighting the virus, of um, you invoking terms of defense, of um, drawing on metaphors of the military. In this entire time, what becomes entirely clear is that all of the investment that the U.S. has made in its gigantic military apparatus has made our public health infrastructure suffer in horrific ways. Um, And another related example from recently is that my daughter's daycare, uh, one of her teachers was supposed to start in January 
and then ended up having to um, back out because she was um, a member of the National Guard and was called to help with COVID, which, you know, it's really great of her to do. But look at us trying to mobilize our military to solve a public health crisis in a pandemic. So um, to me, this whole COVID narrative has just been one part of um, a, a broader sense that there is something um, about just the way we go about our, our everyday lives that's militarized. And um, even through something like the, the lack of public health care access, that um, this is an effect of all the spending that's being devoted into the war machine. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sad. But, um, it is really sad. And yeah, and I mean, it's, it's um, that's not even considering the, um, the, the uh, U.S. Um, uh, management of bases abroad um, of the U.S. territories that are basically just playing host to military um, infrastructures and um, uh, supporting troops and personnel and even civilian defense workers. So um, I, I think even though we don't see a nation at war, that doesn't mean that militarism doesn't structure every part of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. You also, um, you frame Inda Puck and Teresa Hakyongta's work in terms of South Korea's rapid industrialization and modernization following the Korean War. And you go into how um, some people have called that, or a lot of people have called that like the miracle on the Han River, which happened during the military dictatorship of um, Park Jong-hee and his presidency, um, which happened like to the backdrop of really violent human rights abuses, which you also kind of talk about. And so I was wondering if you could um, yeah, elaborate a bit on how, I think you used the word um, or the term historical temperament of that time and how it shapes the two authors' works. Because I think it also speaks to um, your reframing of war um, and the kinds of like war that I think the two authors have been written about a lot previously like I think you focus on something a bit different so yeah uh, so th- that's uh, a, a really good summary of um, of what I was trying to get at I think and putting into park into conversation or to read her alongside Teresa Hakun Cha uh, and of the two Cha is by far the better known figure even though I think she's often cast as someone who's been forgotten I, I think she's actually um, been written about pretty significantly, uh, and perhaps the the sense of the um, her reputation as having been forgotten, I think, has something to do with her aesthetics, which um, is one that documents a sense of trauma or loss. Uh, and to me, this particular understanding of Cha's work really uh, is based on uh, represent readings of dictate, uh, essentially that there's um, something about uh, Japanese imperialism and uh, American nationalism or American um, state na- statism that uh, is responsible for the, the traumas of the migrant, of the diasporic figure. 
And to me, that it's been incredibly helpful to have her work model what inter-imperial relations look like and what um, what occupation under multiple imperial regimes look like. And even for identifying U.S. empire as empire. So I, I thought um, I, I've really benefit, benefited from the criticism in the late 1990s, the early 2000s that have used dictate to do this kind of work. Um, I think what I wanted to build on was critics who were looking at other parts of, uh, of Cha's canon of works. And in doing that, I wanted to present the question of what it might mean to consider her interest in um, administrative documents or in uh, language and punctuation and a certain kind of information economy as also a story of empire. Uh, and <clears throat> what I what I found compelling about putting her with Indug Pak is that actually we have a lot of the same tropes from um, Cha's work in Pak's. And uh, to me, uh, it provided a way to think about two particular instances of U.S., Japanese, and Korean relations where there was something about uh, the shifting nature of empire um, that influenced how these two diasporic women were presenting themselves as Korean. Yeah, I also I'm not sure if that entirely answered your question, which I can't remember what it was exactly. <laughs> yeah, me neither. But um, yeah, there's also I think there's this really interesting moment that stood out to me where you were talking about like the figure of Yu Guansun that um, yeah that Park also writes about, um, and yeah. then we also see in Teresa Hakyongcha's work and how. Um, yeah, so um, I I think Yu Guan has come up a lot in in um, readings of Cha as her effort to recuperate uh, a uh, a feminist history um, of Korean nationalism, or to show the the um, tensions between feminism and nationalism, and for her uh, to represent. Um, you is to show our distance from her or her unretrievability. So um, I I looked at the the photograph and then the um, the I don't want to call it a caption, but um, the the narrative that accompanies the photograph and try to show how um, what Cha was trying to convey is a sense of history as lost or of, um, uh, of this um, heroic figure as uh, finally unaccessible to us. And uh, what's striking is that Pak does the precise opposite thing where she really tries to kind of um, substantiate her own credentials as a patriotic uh, Korean nationalist by saying, oh, hey, I was there with her. Uh, you know, I, I saw her. I talked to her. Um, she was in prison. We were there at the same time. Uh, 
And then just based on that particular snippet, that was kind of her, you know, it was, it's kind of like uh, what we might think of as contemporary name dropping, uh, where she kind of does it to build up her own um, reputation. Um, but then it's clear from the, um, the, the larger sense of her narrative that um, her politics or what she thought of as um, being a good Korean nationalist or a good Korean patriot really shifted depending on Korea's relationship with um, Japan and then with the U.S. So to me, that strategic invocation of Yuan Soon was um, illustrating something that she does uh, throughout her writing, uh, which is to be pretty, um, uh, I guess, calculating and maybe a little bit, um, I think the word that some might use now is complicit. Although um, I, I think what's interesting to me is not necessarily her bad politics, but just that she was caught up in uh, the the movement of um, imperial history or of imperial change or geopolitical change and trying to sort through that in her writing. And um, to read that moment tonally for me was to not so much account for uh, the way that she was trying to present her politics, which was pretty... Um, I guess not interesting, but just a sense of um, rushedness or hairiness or of always wanting to catch up to the moment. And that to me was uh, indicative of something like a historical temperament. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, I also found um, you're reading of rumor and race along similar lines, and especially of the Asian as being, I think the phrase you used was... Um, an anxiety about racial intelligibility rather than a statement on race as such to also be fascinating. Could you elaborate on that a bit as well? Yeah. Um, so that was the chapter. It, it was a chapter in Kazuo Shiguro. And of the ones I'd written in the book, it's the one that I had been working on for quite a while so um, it was something that uh, the, the rumors actually came in a little bit later. Although, as I think I mentioned earlier, I've always been interested in Ishiguro and his kind of ambiguous, ambivalent relationship to Asianness. And my, um, my, I, I've always been interested in an in artist of the floating world, which is the the novel that I write about, and. Uh, the way that I situate this novel, though, is thinking about uh, the structure or the narrative structure of rumor in all of his novels. So what we see there is uh, a character who is totally obsessed with what other people think about him. And uh, the way that this obsession manifests is that 
Uh, he basically just spends the entire narration recounting what other people have said about him. And he ends up becoming unreliable or seeming unreliable, which all of Ishiguro's character, uh, narrators famously do, um, because we really don't believe that he's as great as he thinks he is or as he's saying other people say he is. So um, I did think that there was something about the structure of rumor where there's a circulation of talk that we do find in all of Ishiguro's novels. And I was particularly fascinated by the fact that what each narrator was trying to say about themselves had something to do with uh, likeness or kind or distinction, that there's something about the logic of character or of personality that was the very at the very core of the novels, even if um, it was never really stated as such. And to me, it was this interest in distinction that made maybe something like Asianness or inscrutability the unnamed but overwhelming, uh, I, I guess, preoccupation of Ishiguro's novels. And that was interesting on its own terms. But I think to read that in a novel that specifically working through the memory effects of the, the U.S. occupation, so in the immediate aftermath of World War II, where memory is in a way getting remade, uh, where rumors are actually part of this transitional process. So um, having both the formal uh, account of rumor and then the historical frame for having it make sense or become meaningful in a new way that was what that chapter was really trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I don't know, it was fun to read. Um, you, also, <laughs> you also have a really compelling chapter on Ha Jin. Um, and for this one, I I wanted to like, I, I don't know, you might notice some of my questions are closer to the text and some are further, but this one stood out to me because in the very first Asian American literature class I ever took, mm -hmm. Our teacher asked my class if Hodgin is an Asian American writer, <laughs> and, and we yeah. read Hodgin's Waiting in that class. So, like, presumably, our teacher agreed that he was. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how Hodgin's work and reception reveals some of the limits and the tensions between Asian American studies and Asian studies approaches to Asian American literature. Oh, yeah, that's also a really good question, and uh, I did think that. So I, I don't actually invoke Asian American literature that much in the book, in part because a lot of the figures I look at when aren't self-evidently Asian American. So Hajin is definitely one of them. Um, it, I'm sure Kazuo Ishiguro, who's British, would not say that he's Asian American either. Uh, and even um, Teresa Hakincha during her time was much more inclined to identify as an experimental artist than an Asian American artist. So there's something about a lot of the figures I look at where Asian American is not really the, the denomination that they claim for themselves. Um, but Ha Jin, I think what you've kind of pointed to is that uh, ha, ha Jin is the one where he's striking the uh, the the uh, 
boundary um, between Asian American studies and Asian studies. And uh, his writing, uh, even though it is in English, um, in the early reception history of his work, it was uh, pretty common to see people say like, oh, you know, it seems like it's translated. (laughs) Uh, That one would almost expect Hodgen's writing to be translated. So that's not something I really touch on, but I just want to offer that as uh, as indicating something about his particular writing style that seems to say, oh, um, this is actually a work that belongs in Asian studies, um, or this is a work that seems like it was originally in Chinese rather than written in English. So... Uh, that aspect of it, I think, uh, makes him an interesting border figure for the two fields. Uh, he's also not particularly well liked in Asian American studies, I think. And just you know, full disclosure, I I, I find it hard to read Hajin sometimes, um, and I don't know if I. I mean, I, I I do think that one should and can write about books or figures for reasons other than, oh, I like that person. Um, but I, I do think that there was something about Hajin that was particularly difficult in the context of this book. Um, I, the reason, though, that um, Asian Americanists have issue, have taken issue with Hajin, I think, um, is that he... Um, pretty much, I mean, openly panders to this idea of an American dream uh, and uh, uses that to um, critique the Chinese government (laughs) and uh, without necessarily saying, oh, that's a horrible thing to do, even though it's not something that I find that appealing. um, I think what it shows is that it's really hard to... uh, critique one empire without defaulting to somehow upholding another one. And I do think that we see the opposite a lot in, uh, in um, both popular discourse and in scholarly discourse where to uh, critique by way of critiquing the U S government one somehow takes the Chinese government as doing wonderful things. So um, I think there's something about his work that just really, uh, dramatizes that dimension of how difficult it is to make a um, critique of empire that um, does not involve somehow celebrating another imperial power. Um, and that, I think, has been something where uh, Asian American studies is particularly useful, especially in recent years and recent decades where there has been uh, increased sensitivity to empire. Yeah. Yeah. And you also, um, in the beginning of tonal intelligence, like talk a bit about um, kind of the limits and like a different vision for the relationship between Asian American studies and Asian studies. And so I was wondering if like, I don't know, you want to talk about like, not just what it's like, but like what it could be. Oh, (laughs) Um, I think I was trying to write in the vein of what it could be because to me what it's like is that there are still relatively few actual infrastructures or institutions 
that allow for Asian studies and Asian American studies to really think about the the paradigms and the um, the the scholarship and the frameworks that inspire each field to realize that they might have things to say to each other. So I think that is changing. Um, but I'm sure that, I mean, I know f- for sure that uh, my work is Asian American studies and um, maybe people in Asian studies read it, but I certainly, that's not the positionality from which I write. And um, to me, as an Asian Americanist trained in literary studies, uh, I think what I wish for in um, viewing and reading works in Asian studies is that there are certain um, strengths and traditions in that field. And I'm thinking particularly of deep language study, uh, which I think Asian American studies is not that known for that can um, enrich what Asian Americanists do. So that's not something that I myself can do, but it's something I look at with envy. And um, I do think that there are scholars who are beginning to change that uh, and you know, really drawing together or finding new canons of work to read based on um, texts that are not written in English, but that say something about uh, Asians in the U.S. or um, the relations between um, the United States and Asia. So um, I think the language aspect of it is something that's especially prominent. Um, But uh, I mean, I I do think that there are crossover scholars like Ray Chow, um, Kwon Sing Chen, for example, has been really influential um, people who are um, writing about um, history or representation or culture in ways that really resonate beyond uh, a particular field. So um, if I'm thinking about possibility, um, I mean, I think to put it concisely without rambling too much is that uh, if one were to be as expansive and as thoughtful as possible about the critique of empire, then I think we need Asian studies to do that uh, from an Asian Americanist perspective. So that's something that um, I I think is at the edge of possibility, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. Um, On the topic of like wishes, um, (laughs) in your reading of Trin T. Minha's work, you ask whether there's a path between individual self-representation and collective solidarity. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that question in particular. I think it's definitely a question um, because, and this is just me thinking about the conversation about representation in popular culture where I I think representation matters and is hugely important. Um, I mean, I'm not, uh, I I have a a young baby, so I haven't watched TV or movies in a long time. But my sense is that, you know, there's all of these um, new movies out and new TV shows where... um, we have a lot more, uh, it it is possible to see 
Asians present on screen. And I think a more diverse account of who counts as Asian, even though, um, of course, still largely limited to East Asians. Um, but I, I think I just hesitate to really think of that premise for politics as I think the best that we can ask for. Uh, and I mean, I think the question in the book came from the from the fact that the figures I look at, the uh, the historical figures and then the the artists are all interested in some form of self-representation. And the difference between what's happening in a Cold War context and among more contemporary writers, thinkers, and artists is that there's definitely, I think, a, a critical awareness and maybe even uh, some sense of skepticism about self-representation. And uh, with the exception of maybe Hajin, I think everyone that every writer that I look at uh, really brings that critical consciousness to their act of self-representation. So that to me is already kind of trying to say, you know, if there is a way of thinking about uh, something like a collective, and I even hesitate to call it Asian American uh, or any kind of collective politics that, you know, it can't really begin or it can't, it, maybe it can begin with self-representation, but it certainly can't end there. So I think that particular uh, sense of self-representation with self-critique, which is particularly, um, I think, um, at the surface of what Shanti Minha is doing, um, that was something that I think prompted that questioning um, of how we get from self-representation or in the case of many of the writers, not so much self-representation as forms of effacement or elision, what that can do in relation to uh, a collectivist politics. Yeah, I think that also, like, so I recently graduated from undergrad and I think it speaks a lot even to like the campus politics I saw a lot as a student where for us, there's a lot of divide between like, political groups and cultural groups um especially i don't know for like asian americans so it makes me think of that too can you say Um, a little bit more about that yeah just that um there was always kind of this tension between like asian american groups that are you know know, there to like celebrate like asian culture like korean culture chinese culture etc and then there were clubs that were more focused on like politics um and were like oh we don't care about like holding cultural events like we're not here to like I don't know like show um yeah like we're not here to like do the work of like representing like diversity for the university but that like the goal of the groups would be to like push for political action um yeah I I mean that's um I remember that from when I was an undergraduate (laughs) my friend and I were the education chairs and no one was interested in education and they just wanted to eat Asian food (laughs) Yeah, I also heard it um, that some of those dynamics, like that a lot of clubs that were more outward facing became more like, oh, we just want like to do events for ourselves and not anyone else after Trump was elected. Um, That's, I don't know, something I heard when I started undergrad, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I think what you're saying also um, makes me think of the really fraught role of culture in Asian American studies, um, where culture becomes tied to discourses of authenticity. And this is definitely something that uh, I think is, um, is related to, if not uh, actually born of uh, Cold War politics, where um, self-representation is tied to culture or um, some sense of um, race or ethnic belonging has to do with a culturalist discourse. And I'm not thinking of culture in the in the more anthropological sense or in the cultural studies sense where it has some kind of um, critical potential, but culture as um, uh, as a way of um, managing or enabling uh, uh, politics of inclusion or of um, uh, of uh, representing oneself on the terms that are allowed to you. So, I mean, I, I do think that aspect of it is actually a Cold War story, um, not to make everything about the Cold War. Um, but yeah, that aspect of the campus politics, I definitely think is, um, has been around a long time and maybe is not going away. Yeah. Um, okay. I have another question. So, a few years ago, I got curious about mm-hmm. how people talk about Asian American literature on Goodreads. So I read <laughs> all the Goodreads reviews for a number of books, including uh-huh. Eugene Lim's Dear Cyborgs. And yeah. a lot of people love the book. I mean, it's a great book. But something I found funny was that there were also a lot of people who were complaining that they had picked up Dear Cyborgs because it was marketed as a superhero novel. (laughs) But then they read it and it had no plot. So they found it to be a very boring superhero novel. And so I was wondering, um, towards the end of Tonal Intelligence, how you help us make sense of that Mm. reaction to the book. Oh, I love that question because I love Dear Cyborg so much and I've taught it a few times now and uh, it maybe my class is a little bit like a, a, a Goodreads um, feed because definitely um, people were not, uh, I thought it was going to be the most amazing thing and some people do, they, they do love it and um, some people are just not that into it uh, for reasons that completely baffle me. Um, so the superheroes, I think, is uh, a really brilliant motif for thinking about, I, uh, and here I'm speaking as an Asian Americanist, of um, an Asian American desire for superheroes, which I definitely uh, am guilty of as well. Um, and I don't necessarily mean... Uh, someone like Shang-Chi, like, oh, we need that kind of superhero. Um, but a desire for Asian American, uh, to, to me, the, uh, the desire for Asian American superheroes in the novel is in a way a desire for um, Asian American politics. Um, even though I don't think the, the novel is really explicitly about Asian America or anything really Asian American, and a lot of the characters aren't really marked that way. Um, maybe because, and I've already talked a little bit about rumors, but I am interested in 
the talky aspects of certain novels. So to me, it's not really, I mean, when we think of the a figure of a superhero, it's definitely just one individual. Uh, you think of all the superhero movies and it's basically usually named after just one dude or maybe one gal. Uh, but here, the there are multiple superheroes and mostly what they do is just talk to each other. <laughs> um, so there's something about the, the dialogic form and this idea of um, sometimes meaningful, sometimes empty, always long-winded chit-chat that I think has, um, it's just a, a really um, interesting formal strategy. So I agree, it's not a novel with a plot, but it's a novel that chooses to meander in ways that's thinking through how one might be together with other people in the world. And that's something that you can't tell through a superhero story where it's just about one individual person saving everything. So again, um, not rumors per se, but something like dialogue or talking with, talking next to other people, I think was something that I thought it was modeling for us and thinking through what does it mean to be in a collective together and how loose can that collective be without completely evaporating or not being intelligible as such. Yeah, that's I feel like we went from very sad to very heartwarming. So. <laughs> um, Have you they, read Dear Cyborgs? Yeah, yeah. I, oh, okay, I love okay. it. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. But um, yeah, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just have one last question, which is what are you working on next? Uh, so I am working on a book that's, I, I guess, the easy way of describing it right now is um, fashion and nuclear culture. Uh, and the, the exact essay that I'm working on right now, um, and I say this because I'm literally, or not literally, but I am um, in the thick of writing it and it's um, uh, making me tear my hair out a little bit. It's about the militarization of comfort. And um, I think that could be a way to describe the, the project more broadly that it's looking at um, certain kinds of um, domestic products or domestic goods. And this includes clothing as a kind of fashion, but also um, forms of shelters or dwellings, furniture, and tracing their military history. So that's something that um, is still pretty capacious. And I'm kind of just working my way through it right now. Yeah, that sounds super cool. I, I look forward to seeing it one day. Um, Me too. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining me here today. And thank you so much for having me. Take care too.